Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. For thousands of years, humans have in war and peace attempted to poison one another, or perhaps for a variety, burn each other to death. We might think of poison gas, biological weapons, or even the use of unwitting victims to spread epidemics as being modern innovations, but such horrors have been employed since the earliest recorded histories. Moreover, for nearly that entire time, humans have debated the morality of, of employing those extraordinary weapons. My guest, Adrian Mayer, describes his history in Greek fire, poison arrows, and scorpion bombs, unconventional warfare in the ancient world, now being reissued in a revised and updated edition by Princeton University Press, along with her collection of essays entitled Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws. As she does in all of her books, in both of them, she travels through that complicated landscape where the borders of history, science, archaeology, anthropology, and popular knowledge all adjoin each other and seeks there the realities and insights embedded in myth, legend, and folklore. Adrian Mayer's other books include The Poison King, The Life and Legend of Mithridates, Rome's Deadliest Enemy, a finalist for the National Book Award. She was previously on the podcast in episode 107, discussing her book Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. Adrian, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So um, before we get to poisons and biological warfare and spreading the plague amongst enemy populations by some <laughs> poor sap um, who's left, who goes to infect them, uh, let's talk about the Mayer method. Um, let's, talk about, let's talk about griffins. Okay. Um, at, at some point, I think it was in the 80s, according to the essay at the beginning of, uh, of, of the, the new volume, the new edition, uh, you began to be interested in griffins. Uh, I, I like griffins, but you were interested in griffins in a different way. Why, why were you interested in griffins? Well, um, I first got interested in griffins just because uh, it seemed like such a strange strange creature to be uh, written about in antiquity as a legendary creature rather than a mythical creature. There are no myths about griffins. Uh, there are no ancient Greek myths about about this creature with four legs and a beak like a raptor or eagle. Um, so I became interested in it because it, it seemed to me that uh, it was imagined as a real animal, a very exotic animal of far distant lands rather than a mythological imaginary creature. So I became sort of fixated on the griffin as a kind of ancient cryptid. And I was interested in cryptozoology, especially paleocryptozoology. I wanted to identify uh, creatures in uh, that were described in ancient sources that seemed to be real somehow, but maybe a garbled uh, explanation or description of something real uh, rather than mythological. So I, I, I wondered what sort of creature has four legs and a beak. Now all I could think, I, I couldn't think of any living creature that has four legs and a beak. Can you, I mean, just offhand. Um, four I, legs and a beak. A platypus, yeah. I guess. No, that's the that, closest. It I does mean, have that's a, a bill. That is a bill. A but, bill. No. but if you think about a turtle, that a turtle has a sort of, 
beak, a hard Yeah, that's true. Beak. And, and medieval, but, is, medieval illustrations, they often, it's a very beaky beak. It's a very beaky beak, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I but mean, the, the, the tur- turtle. I grew up around, they weren't quite so much. <laughs> exactly. But that's the only living creature that I can think of with four legs and a beak. And that doesn't really fit the description of griffins, which lived supposedly lived in a desert area. But, 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 but I, I want to make a distinction. <laughs> You've made the distinction between mythological yeah. and what was the other creature? Because, I mean, God knows, hippogriffs, and we, we have lots of, not hippogriffs, but <laughs> the chimera, chimera uh, yeah. pegasus. We, yes. have, we have lots of mashed up creatures in, we do. in myth. That Yes, we do. And, and they, they are all sort of uh, very imaginary, hybrid, composite creatures, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, a sphinx, a uh, lion's body with a woman's head, or the minotaur, uh, a man's body with a bull's head. Those are obviously imaginary. No one really thought they were going to come come in contact with a, a sphinx or a minotaur. Um, the Pegasus, a, a horse that flies. It's it's a it's a composite creature. Has birds' wings, but it's it's very imaginary. And you can you can see that the storyteller's imagination is is putting together these two things: either human and an animal, or uh, two or three animals together um, that are, and, and they have a place in mythology, whereas a griffin didn't really have any place in mythology. It was, it was treated as some real creature that you might encounter should you travel to the, to the remote lands of the East, the desert lands of the East. So I, I started by going to the American school library, uh, American school of classical studies library in Athens and studied thousands of ancient images of bird-headed quadrupeds, you know, from Egypt, Crete, Mesopotamia, Greece, Scythia. And the thing about all these images was that there's no story that goes along with them. They're very old. (laughs) We don't have any texts that explain what people thought of these. So, you know, you can have all sorts of imaginary creatures, like you say, in mythology that sort of mash together features of different creatures. But I realized finally that uh, the only writings about griffins uh, began with fragments in a lost epic by this guy called Aristeus in the 7th century BC. And starting then, he, he was in the 7th century BC, um, describing this creature that Scythian nomads would encounter when they were uh, prospecting for gold in the deserts of Central Asia, and Herodotus then oh. wrote about that. And I've I traced the um, the the textual, the written stories about griffins, sort of coincided with this sort of blossoming and proliferation of images of griffins guarding gold and fighting nomads in oh. art. And so I wanted to know what. What would account for a millennium of consistent descriptions and then related art in that time period from Aristeus in the seventh century or uh, Herodotus, who actually, you know, preserves the fragments of Aristeus all the way up to um, my stopping point was Elian, the Roman natural historian Elian, writing the third century AD. He's sort of the last person to give us any new details about griffins. And after that, the griffin is sort of taken over by Christian uh, symbolism. So I concentrated on that, on that time period. What, what is the, what, what could have been uh, some kind of phenomenon or evidence in, in nature 
that kept that story alive and being perpetuated. So that's and so that that, that's, that finding and so finding griffins in the desert while digging for gold that was a very key that was a key moment for you or it, it was what, what that because might be? it was because I, I grew up in South Dakota and then lived in Montana mm-hmm. so I was very aware of dinosaurs and dinosaurs lots of dinosaurs have beaks and four legs and they lay eggs in the desert um, <laughs> and so I I I sort of um, had an intuition that there could be something to that story and uh, uh, that something to that connection, that here's a creature with four legs and a beak. It's very mysterious. Uh, maybe you find evidence of this dinosaur, not living dinosaurs, but evidence. Uh, I knew that you could find fossils of beaked four-legged creatures, and you could find their nests with uh, uh, petrified or stone eggs, as described in antiquity near gold uh, deposits in Central Asia. So I, uh, that's how I just sort of went with that uh, with that intuition. And of course, there's no way to prove it. It's all circumstantial. Um, but right. we do have exquisitely preserved skeletons, some of the most exquisitely preserved, articulated skeletons of dinosaurs in Central Asia, exactly where Aristeus and Herodotus and Elian and all the other ancient authors located griffins. And no one ever claimed to see a live uh, griffin. They all just said that they lived in that area, but they never, uh, no one ever said, I saw live griffins. So we can't really tell which, which came first, observations of these remarkable uh, fossil dinosaur um, remains, eggs and bones, uh, in the in the Central Asian desert, or did the stories of and the images of some sort of imaginary creature with, with the body of of a lion or a wolf with the head of an eagle did that come first? And then and then when people observed the the fossils, did they then resort to the images that they already had in mind? We don't know which came first, but I think that the fossils of of beaked dinosaurs with eggs and in their nests in the desert. Uh, probably influence the belief that these strange creatures did protect the um, uh, roots to the gold in the in Central Asia. Can't mm-hmm. be proven yeah, though. I mean, I, yeah, no, no. And if I, I could see that, even if I discovered a nest of dinosaur eggs in South Dakota, <laughs> yeah, uh, I might look. I might uh, look nervously around and keep on riding <laughs> in case the mother comes back. Right. I mean, that's it, right. You could see. It, it it takes a certain amount of now I've read you know various books about dinosaurs so I might I might know what it was but without that context with that that factual background uh, I I would get the hell out of there right and the uh, the other thing is that um, some people have suggested this and I think it's a good idea that the Scythian nomads who told this story to the f- first Greeks that ventured out on those routes uh, the the original spice and uh, uh, trade routes to China across Central Asia, they want to protect the sources of their gold. In fact, the Greeks mm-hmm. uh, didn't know where the, where the Scythians got their gold, and the Scythians want to keep that a secret. So you might come up with a story about these terrible, strange, monstrous creatures called griffins that protect the routes to the gold and don't try coming here, and they might show 
they might actually show some uh, giant claws or stone eggs or even the skeletons of these creatures to travelers. <laughs> Interesting. I just I just recorded a conversation with uh, James Belich about his new book about the world after the Black Death, the world after the plague, right. and that got me to read her, go back to Herodotus and read about the ants and gold. Oh yes, um, which is like now people think, oh, that's those are those are the marmots, which might be actually be the uh, the uh, population zero for uh, the bubonic plague, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah. this this gold and Scythians in Central Asia, it's wrapped up in all sorts of you know civilizational changing ideas, right? And you just have to. I, I just think there was a lot more travel. Uh, a long distance travel and trade than we're really uh, aware of. Um, I mean, we, the, just Scythian, Scythian graves in like Siberia from the fifth century BC contain um, coins from Italy, uh, beads from Egypt. I mean, people traded and traveled very long distance yeah. and the stories come with them of course folklore and stories mm -hmm. and of course they get garbled as they're as they're as yeah. they're retold yeah. <laughs> um, so this when you when you when you put this together it, it seems to me you know looking through your essays um, and books that you then began to realize that you could employ this sort of there's a that this this almost developed into a method and you don't I, I know you're too modest to say this but I will <laughs> <laughs> that this is this is what I mean by the mayor method that there, that you've you've rung the changes on this theme and again and again and again and to my mind very successfully. Well, thank you very much. Of course, uh, my conclusions are often they're theories or hypotheses. They're not provable because we don't have all the information. When you right, think right. how much is lost in literature and art from antiquity we just have to go by by what has survived and so yeah. it's uh it's i i sort of sometimes <clears throat> think of myself as a a cold case detective uh, going uh, just going through all these uh files and trying to uh ferret out all the all the um scraps of evidence that you can and then finding patterns putting them together so, I mean, this was a, a natural movement from Griffin's bones and eggs to sort of the giant's bones on Greek islands, right? Could you, you talk about that and what that sort of Greek ideas of what giants were, what they might intimate? Right. It's, a, it's, um, it's interesting to me that uh, I found, I, I think I went through at least 30 Greek and Latin authors and this, of course, wasn't indexed. I'm just reading through the, all the low volumes of of all the Greek and Latin authors, really time-consuming before uh, the internet, finding more than a hundred uh, references to the discovery of bones that were made of stone or had turned to stone of, mm. and have remarkable uh, size or shape. And I just um, gathered all those. And then I made a map of all the fine spots where these things were discovered. And then I had to find paleontologists. Um, and this once again was before the internet, find paleontologists who, who knew whether or not there were any, uh, remarkable fossils in those regions. And I made maps of the ancient fine spots of gigantic or strange stone bones and paleontological deposits of megafauna from Miocene through the Pleistocene era, um, and 
superimposed the two maps and they matched up except for two spots. So two <laughs> islands where, where paleontologists haven't searched yet, but the ancient Greeks said that they found uh, gigantic bones there. So uh, those might be uh, places where paleontologists might find uh, fossils of these megafauna um, creatures, large. Uh, we're talking about mammoths and mastodons and mm-hmm. giant rhinoceroses and giraffes, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that these mammals, of course, their bones are gigantic, but they have the same uh, shape as all mammal bones, um, limb bones and shoulder blades and backbones. Uh, they they look like human bones, but they're about three times the size of human bones. And the ancient Greeks thought that their ancient heroes and giants were about three times the size of uh, puny men and women of today. So um, it's circumstantial evidence once again, but I think it's it's pretty compelling since I have uh, over a hundred accounts of the Greeks and Romans collecting these bones, finding them, measuring them, and then displaying them in temples. And then, of course, they speculate about them. You don't just find something like this and and toss it aside and shrug. You try to explain... uh, how these bones came to be buried so deep in the earth. And they turned to their mythology of giants. So once again, we don't know which came first. Stories about giants. I mean, lots of places around the world have stories about giants with no, you know, fossil, no conspicuous fossils of megafauna. But if you find um, limb bones and shoulder blades of of, uh, long extinct creatures, You'll turn to the myth to explain them. So uh, once again, we don't know we don't know which came first, observations or myths. Uh, but it's I think there's no doubt that finding gigantic or remarkable fossil remains would influence and keep the story alive. Well, let's talk about poison. <laughs> um, you begin by uh, in, in in when discussing. Um, I never thought about it this way, but the whole myth of Heracles yes. is like a meditation on the uses and abuses of poison and how uh, it runs through the veins of the story, uh, literally. Yes. Uh, so could you describe how the, uh, how, how the Hydra and the, its poison spreads through the Hercules story, Heracles yeah. story and how it, 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 it's, it's much more complex than I gave it. I, I thought about, I, I thought uh, it's been a long time since I read it. So there's there's a lot there. There's so there's so much to find in Greek mythology, depending on your search image. And I was looking for the first uh, the origins or say the roots of biological uh, warfare. Could it be imagined even before people uh, turned to make biological weapons? And I found that it was the great Greek hero. Heracles or Hercules, uh, who started it in his second labor. He sets out to slay the Hydra, which is a gigantic poisonous serpent monster with many heads and fangs, and they're all dripping venom. And he found that his ordinary weapons were useless against the Hydra because every time he chopped off one head, two more grew back. So it's just constantly proliferating. And the story goes back, uh, very early, we we have um, uh, vase paintings that uh, from a, the sixth century BC that show uh, Heracles fighting the the hundred headed monster, um, and he he finally figured out a way to uh, 
to defeat the Hydra. He, he cauterized each neck as he chopped it off so that it uh, couldn't grow two more. Uh, but the central head of this monster was immortal. Uh, there's no way he could destroy the central head. So he chopped off that head and quickly buried it alive deep in the ground. And according to the myth, he placed a huge boulder over the spot so that no one else would ever uh, encounter this um, immortal head of the Hydra buried deep underground. And he was a trophy hunter, Hercules, uh, Heracles. So he dipped his arrows in the venom of this Hydra monster. And by doing that, he invented the first biological weapons. He now has, uh, um, because he's a... Uh, He's a mythological hero, of course. He has an unending supply in his quiver of poison arrows. And he goes on to use those poison arrows against various enemies. He uses them against the centaurs, first uh, um, killing centaurs. And then uh, he actually is poisoned himself. How does Heracles mm -hmm. die? He doesn't die a heroic death. He is accidentally poisoned by secondhand hydra poison um his his wife um mistakenly thought that uh by gathering uh the blood of a dying centaur the centaur hated hercules of course uh, he's been shot with one of these hydra arrows he tells heracles wife that if she collects some of the blood uh, and saves it uh, she could use that as a love charm someday uh, to win Heracles back if he's cheating on her. So she does this. She she soaks a, a shirt or a tunic in this blood that she has saved and gives it to Heracles many years later when he's got another girlfriend. And he puts this tunic on. And of course, the Hydra poison does its work. And he, he dies an agonizing death. Uh, yeah, the, the the death is what's struck me is how yeah. how forensic the description is of the of the type of death. Could you? It's uh, gruesome. So let's let's go ahead with that. The listeners will love it. <laughs> well, it it the description is that uh, the sun actually somehow ignites the hydra poison, and it it just um, seeps through the the tunic into his body, and he's. Uh, dashing about trying to tear off this tunic and it clings to him in a really ghastly manner. And he orders his, his men to build a funeral pyre and he leaps on the funeral pyre, uh, because that would, uh, end the agony, uh, of this, of this hydra poison. And what's interesting is that while he's on, on the funeral pyre, he's got his quiver of arrows with him, the hydra arrows. And he bequeaths those arrows to a young warrior, Philoctetes, uh, as he's dying. So Philoctetes inherits this quiver full of, of Hydra poison arrows, which he then takes to the Trojan War later. So it's just this sort of endless cycle of the biological weaponry uh, invented by Heracles goes on to the Trojan War. And so what, I, what, what, what can you tease out of this myth? Um, well, I mean, for one, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a sophisticated discussion about the, about the way in which evil is, continues and is revisited upon us. Um, yeah, yeah. What else do you get out of that? Well, it's interesting that uh, Heracles has invented the first biological weapon, but but the myth goes on to say uh, 
that it just has unintended consequences. That this invention of of a biological weapon has unintended consequences, and and I think the myth really sort of predicts all the practical and ethical dilemmas that surround the use of biological weapons since earliest times. So, which means that that um, since since the first archer dipped their dip their uh, arrowhead in some kind of toxin, whether it's snake venom or poison plants juice uh, from poison plants, uh, there were qualms and doubts about about the unintended consequences of this. So I think the hydra with its ever multiplying heads is a really fitting symbol of the proliferating problems that are created by, by biological weapons. And even his way of disposing of the um, the indestructible Hydra's head, that immortal head, that has a modern counterpart too. I mean, I mean yeah. today we what do we do with uh, with uh, toxic weapons of mass destruction and and all of the nuclear waste that we have? The the scientists call it a geological solution. What do we do? We do the exact same thing that Heracles did with the immortal Hydra head. We bury it deep underground. Uh, under yeah, solid we rock, put on a, <laughs> we put in a funeral. We put in funeral pyres too. Uh, we, we burn yeah. it, destroy it, and, yeah. and then, you know, there's a, a whole part of material science devoted to vitrification to basically in, in turning it to glass. Toxic, yeah, toxic substances into a glass matrix where it's stable. Right, right. Um, so this is uh, it's very prescient. Uh, but the <laughs> what's interesting, I mean. It, the first poison weapon is not a sword. It's not a spear. It's not a javelin. It's a poison arrow. Yes, uh, which which is significant because that's the uh, that's the, what we find throughout the literature. So there's the the way that the these myth the, these myths are meditating on the the righteousness of the use of poison arrows. So could we talk about? Could you talk about? Right, let's talk about Philoctetes and the role of poison arrows in the Trojan War and see how that corresponds to reality. Right, and first, I just want to mention that uh, there are even there were even qualms and misgivings about archery itself in antiquity. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, archery was probably uh, invented uh, in the mists of, of time. We don't know exactly when it began, but uh, it, it's it's a very effective hunting method, and it's it it's. Uh, it really enhances the human ability to hunt and then, of course, make war. But there were qualms and misgivings about using archery in warfare. It doesn't seem very fair. It's it's a way of avoiding hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat, which is, uh, that is the most glorious way to fight a war. That is the most, that is what a, what a hero, how a hero wants to fight and die is in face-to-face combat. But an archer can shoot from afar, from a hidden position, uh, and and the his adversary doesn't even know he's there. So, arch, archers were sometimes equated with cowards, and it was also equated with ambush. Both of these methods are not not seen as noble, and yet we do have these fabulous heroes from Greek mythology who are archers. Heracles was an archer. Odysseus, of course, but is an archer, and Philoctetes is an archer. So, so there, there's a lot of ambiguity around just use the use of arrows. All right. So, cultures around the world use 
poison arrows for hunting. But am I wrong in thinking that, uh, in, let's just focus on the classical world, that people rarely used poison arrows for warfare? I mean, is there, are, is there any evidence that Greek or Roman or Persian armies used poison arrows, you know, all the archers firing poison arrows as an actual sort of tactic? I, I don't think we have any evidence for that in the classical uh, Greek and Roman world, but they certainly accused their enemies of using poison arrows. Okay. Uh, the, the Scythians were dreaded, much dreaded in antiquity um, because they supposedly poisoned all their arrows. So facing a Scythian uh, true, uh, group of soldiers or warriors on horseback, they were horseback horseback archers and they uh they were famous for their deadly aim their uh rapid firing and their uh poison arrows and we we have the recipes for their for their uh poisoned arrows and it's a pretty nasty ghastly recipe i mean is it does it work Oh yes, it would work very well, and it. Um, what what do they have, use? Well, we have several authors, uh, Greek and Latin, who tell us what the recipe was. So supposedly they uh, gathered um, venomous vipers from the area, and there there are several. There's the Caucasian viper. Uh, very, that's one of them. Um, there were at least three toxic vipers in, in Scythian territory around the Black Sea area. So they gather these, these vipers, um, get the venom, and then chop up the bodies, uh, put the venom, the venom that they've milked from the, from the vipers, plus the chopped up bodies, uh, into a leather pouch, uh, along with dung, feces, <laughs> And human yeah, and human blood. Um, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that'll work. I mean, you bury it underground in this pouch together oh, until it until it um, uh, just uh, putrefies. Then you dig up the leather pouch, and you uh, that that is the substance that you dip your arrows in. Now you don't you don't want to scratch or drop any arrow on yourself either. And the Scythians had a very clever. Uh, quiver design in which they had a double compartment quiver and we know this is true because we find the quivers in their in in their um graves so they had a a a quiver uh that you could you could have arrows in one pocket with a with a cover on it and then uh the bow and and other arrows in a different compartment um heracles said they had that the scythians had a little golden uh, vessel attached to their belts. He didn't know what it was for, but I'm guessing that it could have been for dipping your arrows in uh, before battle. Now, did they really use this? Uh, th- I, this would be lethal. Just a scratch would cause a really uh, an agonizing death or um, an unhealing wound for the rest of your life. So it would it would be extremely effective. I mean, not just gangrene, but all sorts of pathogens, and as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, did they really use it? Why do we have the recipe? I mean, the Scythians did never write this recipe down, but they told everyone about it. And that's part of, I think, part of psychological warfare surrounding biological and chemical weapons. If you say you have these, and then you tell 
the recipes, the ghastly, gruesome recipe, and then uh, let people imagine exactly what will happen to them if they encounter you in in battle. Um, that, that's that's like half of the effect of mm. of biological and chemical warfare is the psychological advantage that you have. Um. So uh, we, we should move on to a different type of way of using disease. Uh, and this is something I mentioned in the, in the, in the introduction. People using, uh, creating uh, epidemics or spreading epidemics using, as it were, uh, human, I don't know, uh, human vectors. So sending someone who's infected with something into an enemy city. Is that, is that, am I, is that right? I mean, people do right. this? Uh, and, and besides just um, disease, you could sell, I mean, um, epidemics, you could uh, poison wells with mm-hmm. toxins that would, uh, that would cause di- uh, illness or death. And this was often done for a, a, when you're um, besieging a city and uh, chosen as a uh, resorted to because no one wants to keep the siege going and it's a, an easy way to to win I mean, the earliest uh, example we have of poisoning wells actually comes from ancient Greece in the first sacred war in the uh, in the seventh century BC and once again we have many different historians uh, tell the story so it seems like it, uh, it certainly was believed and was certainly possible of course, there's no proof because we don't have any evidence of it. But uh, supposedly, uh, they gathered a great deal of hellebore, which is a toxic plant, and put it into the water supply of a, uh, the town they were besieging um, during the Sacred War. And of course, this is uh, yet another um, uh, reality of using biological warfare. It it has unintended consequences, or it has uh, consequences that that harm non-combatants. So if you do this to the water supply of an entire city, you kill all the women and children and elders, not just the, not just the warriors inside. So, so there were qualms about that. Um, but. Oh, and you should explain uh, in the introduction to the second edition, you describe uh, what happens when modern people don't take ancient poisons like uh, hellebore seriously. Uh, oh. <laughs> hellebore, it's nasty stuff. Yeah, I think you. I think you're referring to uh, the History Channel uh, wanted. Yeah, want, wanted me to come as a uh, consultant, uh, where they were going to recreate some of these uh, poison weapons that were uh, chemical and poisonous weapons that were described in the first edition of my book, and uh, they were very gung ho young. Uh, Young guys who thought they could uh, recreate this, and they were they were going to gather a bunch of hellebore from a buy it in a nursery. I mean, hellebore does grow in a lot of people's gardens. You really need to be careful with this plant. Mm-hmm. You really need to wear gloves and everything when you're transplanting it or pruning or picking it. They were just going to uh, chop it up and put it in a mortar and pestle, and didn't realize that they would need to uh, protect their skin and and not even breathe the fumes and then they were they were planning to recreate the spartans chemical weapon that was used during the peloponnesian war the spartans uh were besieging plataea the the walled city of plataea and the spartans came up with uh 
a fantastic uh, first, I, I think it was one of the first times that uh, a chemical weapon was used against an enemy in antiquity. They made a huge fire outside the walls of Plataea, and then they had the brilliant idea of throwing in large lumps of sulfur into yeah. this fire. Uh, and you could get sulfur uh, wherever there were volcanic um, rocks. But sulfur on a fire, uh, that creates sulfur dioxide gas. And uh, that, that uh, would, would be lethal to the Plataeans. And these guys were going to make a bonfire in MacArthur Park or someplace in LA and, and throw sulfur on the fire. And I said, you need gas masks for everyone in, in, a, in a five mile radius, which they hadn't, they hadn't realized that it was, if it was lethal in, in antiquity, it's going to be lethal today. Yeah. It's, that's, that's, there's a whole book to write about that uh, in a way, like modern perceptions of the past. Um, yes. But the uh, let's talk about what about using so poisoning wells. Um, yes, you you mentioned passing by the way that the idea of throwing horses on catapults so that they'll hit the well. Uh, the I always thought the aim would have to be sort of supernaturally good. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it seems improbable. I don't, I don't think I mentioned that, but uh, <laughs> no, but I, I thought about it as I was reading. It, yeah, you know, that all yeah. That, yeah, that's that's what medieval people were doing, and you know, medieval people aren't that stupid, or and there are and catapults aren't well. They can be that accurate, but you know it's really hard to call your shots. Um, but, the, uh, but using the using a person who's like a, a plague vector that's that's cold, and yet that that's done. Um, the story you're probably thinking of is a medieval story from 1376, yeah. I think, 1346, uh, the siege of Kaffa on the Black Sea in the Crimea, um, the Mongols versus uh, the Crimeans there. Um, that's a that's a medieval story um, that the um, the Mongols or the Tatars were besieging uh, Kaffa, which was a walled city, uh, and that they were then uh, afflicted with black play, uh, black death, and that they, as they were withdrawing their siege, because so many of their own uh, warriors were dying, that they catapulted some of the dead bodies of their own soldiers over the walls of Kaffa. And uh, we don't know if this is true or not. We have a report that it's true. It's it's not impossible. They had manganelles and and catapults at that time. Um, and you don't need to know the science behind how lethal that would be. Uh, all you need to know is that if you come in contact with with the body or the clothing uh, of someone who died of the of the of the Black Death, uh, you'll probably get it too. So that's that's. That's all you, all you would need to know uh, to enact that um, that strategy. That that whole story is controversial now because people mm -hmm. wonder whether catapults could uh, could actually um, hurl a body over the over the walls, or of course you could hurl part of the body over the wall, um, yeah. or or you could hurl <laughs> clothing. I mean, I mean, yeah. it's it's feasible. We just don't know if it really happened. The the one yeah. the report that we have says that the people inside the walls uh, were terrified and immediately threw the bodies that were catapulted over the walls threw the bodies into the sea uh, to try and get rid of them, and mm -hmm. that we do know that black 
plague did spread throughout Europe, um, brought from Central Asia by the Mongols and Tatars, but it wasn't this event, if it happened, that actually spread it. Of course, it was it was spread by ships carrying grain and rats and fleas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but fleas, uh, that brings <laughs> us to uh, one of my favorite, I think, and many people's favorite part of the book is flaming pigs. Oh. Um, you, you, <laughs> using animals as weapons. And I, yeah. I think we'll, well, after this, we'll talk about, I think, sort of the larger, or sort of almost the, 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 the philosophy behind some of these things, which is, which kind of connects to God's, uh, to, to the, your book on, on robots. But um, let's talk about animals as weapons uh, and flaming pigs. Well, using animals or insects, I think, is a... Uh, yeah has to come under the rubric of biological warfare because it's living entities used as allies in war. Now, of course, all kinds of armies had, uh, uh, they had horses and mules, donkeys, um, dogs. Um, so there are uh, already animals involved in warfare. But then if you, um, if you come up with some really brilliant ways of using uh uh, animal um, animals that dislike each other. For instance, the Persians and the and the and the Greeks. Uh, uh, you you knew if you knew that uh, that camels and horses don't get along, and if horses suddenly catch a whiff of camels and they haven't met with camels before, you, your horses are are not going to behave as you expect in in your cavalry, and. Um, of course, the invention of, or the, I, I guess you'd say the, the, the new uh, in, innovation of war elephants, which are living tanks that were brought by Alexander the Great and his, and his followers back to the, the Mediterranean world. The first armies, first cavalries that met with, with, um, with elephants, war elephants, that that would was an astounding biological weapon that they had to learn to deal with, and according to folklore or legend, it was Alexander the Great who found out uh, one of the uh, ways of repelling war elephants. Uh, he found this out from the king of India, who who used war elephants. Apparently, King Porus uh, told Alexander that if you ever encounter war elephants again, just uh, make sure you have pigs because elephants cannot abide the sight the the smell and the sound of pigs and so um apparently this is true uh, elephants don't have great eyesight and they also don't like small animals running running under their feet and they also um uh are upset by loud uh harsh shrieks of of squealing pigs. So um, this really worked and pigs were used to repel war elephants. Now it was the people, the, the people of Megara, the army of Megara, when they encountered war elephants uh, in the fourth century BC, uh, decided to go a step further. And this is really uh, cruelty to animals. So the story is really appalling, but they had a lot of pigs in Megara they actually um, covered the pigs with pine resin and then set them on fire and sent them running at the war elephants that were attacking. And this 
tactic of using flaming pigs um, actually worked. Uh, and so that's that's the story real, of the real play. innovators. Real innovators, but um, the, the, there's one. The last story of pigs versus elephants is really. Uh, uh, you, you didn't really have to set them on fire. Apparently setting them on fire was uh, supposedly the justification was to keep them squealing, but obviously it was a, it was an appalling and surprising, uh, surprising, almost, almost once again, psychological warfare to see flaming pigs coming at you. Now I heard that war games. Now you can, you can actually, uh, you can deploy flaming pigs in. Uh, it's true. I, I verified war. this after reading this in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah. also, there's a um, a maker of small um, miniatures for for uh, Roman warfare and Greek and war- Roman warfare, and you can buy little models of flaming. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you must be very proud. Don't you, don't you have any in your possession? No, I, I don't. You would, it's a, it's, it's enough. <laughs> it's enough to know they exist. <laughs> but there's one one last war. Um, I can't remember who it was, but one one pathetic war elephant was brought to besiege uh, a Byzantine town, and they had one pig, and they dangled it by a rope in front of the elephant and repelled the war elephant. Uh, this was in the 6th century AD at some point. So that's the last uh, reported um, use of a, a pig versus a, a war elephant. Reported well, this by kind of gets back to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this gets back to your anecdote about the young uh, producers for the History Channel documentary, but um, <laughs> y- you you mentioned in the in the very in the introduction, I think, that um, ancient history is generally generally ignored in the history of chemical and biological warfare, which is very interesting given everything we've just talked about. That it would be so. So why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, one reason is that. Uh, Historians have assumed that that biological weapons would require scientific knowledge, uh, understanding of um, uh, pathogens and things like that. Uh, that that knowledge, uh, scientific knowledge, wasn't developed in antiquity. They also assume that that even if the cultures in the past knew how to make uh, toxic weapons and uh, chemical combustibles, they would refrain from such uh, strategies and weapons out of respect for traditional rules of war. And uh, I think the third reason that it's been ignored is that it's difficulty, the difficulty of systematically collecting all these widely scattered and little known ancient accounts of what really are biological and chemical weapons and tactics and forerunners. Um, but of course, uh, you don't need to know the science behind using biological weapons or toxic weapons. All you need to do is experiment and then be willing to, uh, to, to stoop to using them. Um, also, we, we don't really have any rules of war in antiquity. There are, Maybe some unwritten rules of war. There were, as I said, misgivings about archery or ambush or using dishonorable weapons, but they're not really forbidden by anyone. I, I, I spend a lot of time in my introduction trying to go through each, uh, each ancient culture that used toxic or chemical weapons and see whether they had any unwritten 
rules of war uh, against them. And you can find uh, arguments against them, but they use them all the same. So um, that argument, that reason for for assuming that no one ever used biological and chemical warfare in antiquity falls by the wayside. I'm really struck by something that is very close to what I got out of uh, your gods and robots. It's that we might think that the Baconian project, uh, the forceful mastery and manipulation of nature by mankind, began in 1602 or whenever he wrote. But throughout this book and others of yours, um, it's clear that humans have dreamed for a long, long time about mastering the forces of nature and using them for our benefit. Um, from flaying pigs to scorpions to hellebore to all the rest of it, the hydra or the pegasus for that matter, uh, there's apparently this deep atavistic urge to master the powers of nature and use them against other people to kill them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that uh, it's really surprising how deep the origins of biological and chemical weapons are. I mean, you can find it in the Bible, um, it's uh, it's it's embedded in language itself. The word toxic, our word toxic, uh, comes from the ancient Greek word for bow, something for the bow, and we have these poison arrow stories featured in in the early Greek myths uh, about Heracles and and then in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, so. Just, uh, it's just people would weaponize whatever they had at hand in nature. And then, as you, as you point out, there's this almost this envy of nature's powers. And why can't we, uh, why can't we, uh, harness these and use them for ourselves? Um, and the evidence from the ancient world really shatters the, the idea that there's it, that biological and chemical warfare is a, is a modern development. Or that there were ancient rules of war that ever uh, guaranteed that all combat would be honorable and fair and noble. Um, it's just people weaponize uh, whatever they can, uh, especially in life and death situations like warfare. So, uh, so you're right. I think uh, I think human beings are always engaged in this um, desire to imitate nature improve on nature, and then maybe surpass nature. So um, it's uh, some, of the, some of the methods were, were crude, but others are fairly sophisticated. My guest today has been Adrienne Mayer. She's the author of numerous books, most recently a second edition of Greek Fire, Poison Arrows, and Scorpion Bombs, and Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, both from Princeton University Press. Adrian, thanks for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 